Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fantastic Pixel Castle and Frog Pants Studios presents Word on the Street with Greg Street and Scott Johnson. Well, 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 we find ourselves here again, once again, at the burning fire that is Greg Street's uh, brand new awesome company. It's not really a burning. That's not a great way of saying that, is it, Greg? It makes it sound like everything's on fire and we're in a lot of trouble already. <laughs> yeah, I was going for it more of It turned out a, so good, and then a month later, it's all in shambles. I know, right? I was going for more of a cozy, you know, fire, hey, it's Christmas time, let's all roast oh, okay. marshmallows, that sort of thing. But I don't. I think it kind of derailed and went a different direction, and for that... We are terribly sorry. Uh, hey, everybody, it's Word on the Street. I'm Scott, and that's Greg. We're back again uh, one month later. Today, we're going to talk a bunch about prototyping, uh, kind of where you guys are at uh, at this stage with Ghost and its uh, various aspects of prototyping. But I have some great and exciting news. We have a couple of brand new folks with us today, and I'm excited to bring them in. Let's start with Lisa, uh, who is, uh, oh, sorry, Lisa Ohanian. I got it right. I was, I was, I was prepared to struggle. Uh, she is joining us. Hello, Lisa. Well, uh, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Uh, it's fantastic having you. I'm doing great. We also have with us Christina Swanenberg, who also joins us today. Hello. Hi. Hi. It's nice to have you both here. Now, uh, Lisa, you're listed here as production director and mm-hmm. Christina as VP of product. Uh, it seems like you are two very important people when it comes to prototyping the game. Uh, maybe let's start with, uh, with Lisa. Tell us a little bit about where you, where you're coming from before fantastic pixel castle, what you bring to the table, what you're excited about, just kind of how things are going in general for you. Yeah. Uh, so been a gamer my whole life. Um, and realized pretty early I wanted to, you know, go into the game industry. Um, before getting into it, uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon, got a master in entertainment industry management, which is kind of how to apply management principles to creative projects. Uh, and since then, after that and a few internships, I've had the opportunity to ship like, I think, 10 games now across a bunch of studios. Some of the highlights being Call of Duty Black Ops 2, God of War 2018, Valorant, and I even worked at uh, Wizards of the Coast on D&D for a while, uh, which was different and fun, but very cool. Um, so at FPC, I'm the production director, which means essentially I help us figure out how to execute on our goals. 
This includes everything from determining a team structure that suits our challenges, defining how we work from day to day, creating and changing plans as we go, and generally how we hold ourselves accountable to making the game that Greg and Christina are guiding us towards creating. Um, I kind of like to think about the way Christina and I work together as Christina is more focused on the what and I'm more focused on the how, but we have to work very closely together on a very regular basis to make sure that what we're making it, what we want to make stays in sync. That sounds fantastic. And I played all the games you mentioned. So uh, you've you've come to speak to yet another fan of your prior work. And I can't wait to see what you do with the studio. Uh, Christine, let's swing over to you. Um, it says here you've had a ton of experience. Uh, tell us a little bit more about where you're coming from. Uh, yeah, I, similar to Lisa, a gamer my whole life, uh, working in games was a lifelong dream. Uh, and um, I began uh, kind of studying psychology and uh, in graduate school, I interned at Riot working on League of Legends um, as a researcher. Um, and then I stayed at Riot for a while, but I moved around uh, to a couple of different places in Riot. So whether it be League of Legends working on you know player behavior or our IP creative teams where we worked on music, arcane, um, the comic books, right? Uh, lots of like IP storytelling. Uh, and then I moved over to R&D to work on some new games uh, and then came to FPC. That's very cool. Greg, what's the, what's your deal with hiring great people to work on your game? <laughs> how, how does that work? I mean, it feels like you really got, I, I, I've only had a chance to meet uh, a handful of folks from FBC so far, but they all seem like maybe you're punching above your grade a little bit. And I, I, I'd like your opinion, your reaction. Yeah, it it is a really talent-driven industry and everyone says that, but I think the longer you're in this business, the more you figure out that like getting good people is the key to everything. Like you cannot make a good game if you have one person with an awesome vision and then you hire, you know, a thousand mindless drones to try to execute. You really need people that can make, you know, make tough calls and with limited information on a moment's notice can work independently, aren't going to rock the boat, know when it's appropriate to disagree and when it's the right time to commit and move on. Um, And yeah, you know, I, I try to be a humble person, but I take a lot of pride in this team that we've put together. It's it's really something special. So as as somebody who started their own studio now and is well on their way to uh, getting a game out the door at some point, um, are there specific uh, qualities you're looking for? Uh, other than obviously a lot of these folks you, you've known or bumped into or worked with at various companies prior to this, but... Are there certain qualities you're looking for specifically for FPC, uh, maybe even more so than you have in previous positions where you've had to do some of the hiring or at least some of the evaluation of people? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for any kind of like early project, whether it's within an existing studio or a brand new studio, you hate this word, but it works really well. You want an entrepreneurial mindset. You want people who are kind of thinking about what do we do next? How do we move forward? It's always about like forward momentum. You want to you want to keep going. Like what's what's blocking the team? How can we remove that? How can we make decisions? For FPC specifically, I really wanted to be a great place to work, which might sound dumb, like who wouldn't want that? But but honestly, some companies really put a premium on it. Um one of our values is is to have fun. Like we're games are fun. We want to have fun. We don't want to be a an awful place to work. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to crunch. We're not going to um, do a lot of that nonsense. So I really wanted people who had, you know, had those shared values, wanted to, to work hard, but also play hard and take a break when it's time to take a break. 
and people who could disagree and have, um, you know, sometimes we have arguments too strong a word. We have spirited debates on things, but not, you know, nobody takes it personally. At the end of the day, we're like, okay, we talked about it. We're going to make a decision to move forward and not have people who will say, well, I'm still not happy about the decision. I'm going to keep bringing it up every time I have a chance. Yeah. It seems like a very healthy way to do it. And I'm really glad uh, that we're going to get a chance to do this series with so many great people at the company, because I feel like we're just going to get a nuance that other games just don't give you and a view that other games certainly don't give people. Uh, so it's wonderful having you all here. I'm excited to get into it. <clears throat> We're going to talk today a bunch about prototyping. Uh, we've been teasing that out a little bit. I'm actually going to start with a with a question we got from a listener that I just think will g- give us a good start. Uh, hello, Scott and Greg and possibly others. Good news. There's others. <laughs> Uh, thanks again for doing this show. Scott mentioned you were uh, doing the next episode with game prototyping in mind. I make prototypes for kitchen sink faucets for the company I work for, uh, different styles and use cases, etc. Is your process similar? Try to load of ideas, see what sticks before finalizing what the thing is going to work like and look like. Thanks again. Denmark Terry. Uh, I take it Terry's from Denmark. Uh, well, Terry, thanks for asking the question. Um, let's start with... Uh, Let's start with Christina. Uh, what is for you guys anyway? What is prototyping? What is what is the plan? Is it any different than any other games studios prototyping process? Yeah, I mean, one of the really interesting things is that prototype is different for every studio for every game. Uh, but uh, basically, prototype is one of the earliest phases in game development, and uh, it's when your team is super small. Uh, it's when things are highly ambiguous. You're still trying to figure out exactly what the game is. So you might have an idea um, when you go into prototype, but prototype's the time when you try to really figure out what are the like critical things tying that idea together that will create a great player experience, innovate in the genre. Uh, so prototype is like this hard f- part of development because it is so ambiguous. Um, and Lisa, I don't know if you wanted to give more detail on kind of prototype itself and where it sits. Yeah, I can jump in a little bit. Um, I first want to echo what Christina said. Like, there's no one way to do this. It depends on your needs of your game or your faucet, the people that you have and how they're going to fit into making something. Um, so we wanted it to be really crisp about what it means for us. And for us, we think about it as validating anything that is big or really ambitious or unique. If it's going to have a big impact on the game or if it's very new, that's where we're going to want to spend our money in this early prototyping stage because it's all about getting learnings and all about exploration. Um, You mentioned the phases, uh, Christina. Before prototype, you usually have some sort of ideation phase, and that's what we're coming out of. And that's where we talk about what our baseline goals and ideas are. We define our vision. We make sure we all know what our risks are and what we're going to try to do about them, what we're going to try first and second and third if things don't work out. Um, And then that's when you enter the prototyping phase, which, again, validating anything big or ambitious. And then after that, the phase we'll go into later is pre-production. And that's where you worry about fleshing out something more holistic, learning about what it takes to make something at the quality you want to make it. But again, for now, we just want to test out our biggest bets and make sure that when we get them in game, they work as we expect and that they all work together because you would be surprised the things that don't turn out the way you think they will once you get them in game into something playable. Yeah, I imagine as as things are on paper, they often are going to come out looking a little bit different than they do in actual execution. Which leads me to this question: How much are the are the uh, concept artists or any of the artists really on the team or programmers or or uh, anybody at that level? How much of their work 
is A, considered in prototyping and B, drives that process of prototyping? I could jump in unless you want to, Christina. Okay. Uh, I think it depends. The examples that you gave, concept artists and engineers are working on completely different efforts, but they will need to support other people's efforts. Mm. So, for example, um, we one of our uh, teams is going to be really focused on world building, defining what our art style is going to be, um, putting some foundational groundwork in place for our narrative. And the work that our concept artist does there is going to be pretty uh, important and critical to that. Now, is the first thing that they draw going to be something that is final and goes in our game? Probably not, but it's going to be really essential to that process and getting to where we ultimately need to be. On the flip side, we have a lot of technical stuff we want to do to make blue shards work in a way where they can load fast, they are reliably different, and they are reliably fun because those are all hard things to do by themselves. And together, they can be even harder. And so a lot of the discovery work that we do there um, by our engineers will be something that, again, moves us in the right direction. Is the first thing they try going to be the thing that we pursue? Who knows? Mm. But, um, you know, but people will need to support other efforts. And that work is more likely to be something that supports, unblocks other people rather than being work that is reflected in the final product. So I think it depends on the person and what effort they're supporting at the time. If that makes sense. It does make sense. Like I, I always wonder how much of, of the early work, let's call it either pre-prototyping or, or during the prototype process, how much of it is wasted, not wasted, but, but lost because you're throwing a lot of, you know, spaghetti at the wall, seeing what sticks. And while you hope you have most of that worked out in the idea phase, you're still going to have to fumble through some things. And a lot of people are going to draw a bunch of stuff that'll never get used or will get put to the side and used later as, I don't know, uh, player benefits for an expansion to say, hey, you want to see some early prototype work that we did back in early 2023 or whatever? Like there's advantages to having some of that old work, but a lot of it may not get used. That's part of the process, right, Greg? Like we don't, it's not a problem. It's just you expect to have, to churn out a bunch of stuff for your workflow that ends up not making it to final. It's like getting cut from a film sort of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a million reasons you might not use something. A concept artist might come up with a monster that kind of later on doesn't match the art style or, you know, maybe it ends up looking too much like a creature from another game. And you're like, oh, we don't want to we want to have our own look. We don't want people to, to confuse us with this other IP out there. Or maybe an engineer was trying to build a feature in one way and then realized that's going to be too memory intensive. So they have to rewrite it and kind of come at it from a different direction. Yeah, it's really about... Right now, we're small. And when you're small, you're relatively inexpensive in terms of how much budget you're burning through. And making changes of direction is much easier because you have a, a, just a smaller number of people that you have to speak with. If right now, I think we're about 20 people. If we were at 100, it would be very hard for us to make major changes in direction because you might have a whole team that was working on a monster and then you decide to cut the creature. Like, that's bad. Or you might have... You might have a really hot shot effects artist who says, okay, I'm ready to put the effects in the game. Tell me what effects you need. And we're like, well, we don't know yet because we haven't figured out how our spell system works. Or or maybe we don't even have a tool for you to put effects in. And they're like, well, now I'm bored. And you don't want like really, you know, really awesome people to be bored. That's that's not good for morale. Yeah, I could see that being a problem. Um, for Ghost, at this stage, as you enter prototype stage, what are the main goals on the table for ghost for this game specifically, which 
How long? First of all, let me ask you this, Greg. How long until we know what the real name is going to be? Because obviously it's not going to be Ghost. Or maybe it's not obvious. I don't know. It's a weird question to ask, right? But do you think do you think we're going to go for a really long time calling it Ghost and then suddenly you guys will come out and say, all right, the game's called Two Guys and a Sword or whatever you're going to do? Um, Normally, like with traditional publishing, you use a code name for a few reasons. One, you don't want it to leak to players before you're ready to make a big splash. And two, you don't want a bunch of like legal trolls out there to try to like grab the rights to everything and then charge you a lot of money when you want the, you know, two men and a sword website back. (laughs) Um, We're in a different situation because we, you know, we could theoretically name the game at any point. We're holding out a little bit because we want the name to kind of, you know, we want the name to be informed by the game. We want a cool name that kind of matches it as we get farther along with the world and the, um, the gameplay. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe we will be able to name it a little sooner than than normal. Well, we look forward to that. But in the meantime, uh, Christina, I'll ask you for ghosts. What are those main goals right now for prototyping? Like what, where do you start? Cause I, I understand the idea of working through ideas, putting them on the table, making decisions, cutting what doesn't work. That all is very sensible, but I assume you've got to have like a really great place to start. Obviously it comes out of the idea phase, but where is it now? Yeah. So using kind of Lisa's framing about like focusing on what's highly uh, ambiguous or highly innovative. That, that's basically what we do. We look at all the entire game ideas, all of them, how they tie together the vision. And we say, what parts in here are the most uh, innovative are the most risky? Like, how will we know that this idea works early on? Uh, and then it, it's basically a prioritization question, right? Like, okay, so this, part of the game is the biggest and the scariest. So that means we need to figure it out early and make sure that we're understanding it creates the player experience we want. So um, for us, that's like blue zones. Um, So I don't know if you want me to uh, remind everyone of of blue zones and what they are. Yeah. So I was going to actually ask about that or I was going to remind everybody earlier that we should probably do that. I don't think since the AMA, it's gotten much of a description. So please do uh, re-explain that to everyone. Yeah, so blue zones are a different kind of map than uh, is typical in the MMO genre, where uh, they're private, so a a player decides who gets to play in their blue zone. Um, They are shaped by the player, so that means the player can decide, like, are they building things on it? Like, what kind of, uh, like, uh, interactions with NPCs do they want to have? Uh, and then blue zones are also highly unique every time. Uh, A big part of it is exploring them, finding out what's on them. Um, so it should feel full of discoveries. So that's the most innovative kind of risky part um, of Ghost uh, because we're adding this new type of map to the genre. Uh, and so a lot of our prototype is focused on can we make Blue Zones work? Will they deliver uh, the like quality experience for MMO players that we want? Will MMO players like it? Um, can we make them like interesting every time? Uh, so it's a, a lot of work and a lot of our prototype efforts are focused on that work. Um, real quick, are there any, and anyone can answer this, any examples of games, non-MMO, obviously, because it sounds like this is a new idea in that space, but are there other video games somebody could say, oh yeah, I played that, therefore I kind of get how these zones will work? Because you're not really talking about like procedural generation, are we? It's something else. We're trying to think about well, sorry, uh, I want the technical side of that, and then you could talk about. Um, we we know that there needs to be some randomization, so we're going to explore a lot of ways to do it. Um, procedural generation gets 
a bad rap sometimes, um, but to not look at any of the learnings from that would probably be a bad idea. So PBD, we don't want to prescribe procedural generation zero or procedural generation 100, although I think we we have instincts. Sure. Uh, sorry for the technical side, because we're thinking about that a lot right now. Back to you, Christina. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think uh, we've often referenced survival genre games um, as like these kinds of maps. Um, there's obviously a lot of changes we might make from like a Valheim um, into how does that work in the MMO genre. Uh, but that's probably the best side in is survival games. Um, and I think like to, to Lisa's point, a lot of our hypotheses for like that we're going to explore in prototype are around, hey, we think like... Uh, Having advanced AI um, for NPCs will make it interesting every time. Like, let's test that out. Let's let's see how that works in prototype. See if it's a good avenue. Maybe we try some things. We're like, no, this isn't feeling as good. Maybe it's about movement. Maybe, and and so we just will try different hypotheses. Um, and until we land on the right mix of factors, that creates a really compelling experience. Interesting. I don't know if this is uh, anyone else is thinking the way I'm thinking right now, but I like to. I'd like to have a vision of what this looks like as you start to lay it out. And what I picture is some really low poly thrown together. Here's an example of a camp you might run into. And it's got these NPCs there. This guy's going to sell you stuff. He'll repair your stuff. And that lady over there is going to give you a quest. Um, is that too far from the truth? Is that how this will work, Greg? You, you guys will have like... Uh, you know, working examples of stuff, but you've all got the imagined a nation to know that this is going to look amazing when you're done. But right now it's just some flat color, nasty animatic, right? Yeah, that's, that's what it looks like. Um, one of the nice things about working in unreal is there's a lot of just like off the shelf assets you can use to stand in. You, you know, some of them are free, some of them you pay for, which is fine. We'll replace all of that with our own art before we ship. But right now we can have, a tree that looks like a tree rather than it just being a big gray box. And we tell everyone, remember, that's a tree. Right. But that's exactly what it looks like right now. It's, you know, gently rolling hills with a little bit of grass texture on it. There's some trees. There's some monsters that'll come attack you. Um, it looks like a very, very early, um, you know, shareware game or something. Interesting. I, I mean, I'm personally, I would love to see what that looks like. How much is too much at this stage sharing it with the audience? Obviously, this show is designed to talk about that and to talk about the process of building this game from idea to, to finished state. And I know people are enjoying it on that level, but sometimes you don't want to show everything because you give off weird vibes like, well, the big gray box is supposed to be a tree, but you don't want people trying to interpret what your big gray box is. Um, and we yeah, know it was funny. We, we yeah. talked a lot about prototype specifically because my sense is that a lot of gamers don't, don't have a good understanding of what a game looks like. And it's very, very early stages. And we're I mean, nervous is not the right word, but we're a little reluctant to show what a game looks like super, super early because it looks terrible. Right. Yeah. And, and people may anchor to that of like, Oh, they've talked this big game. They've been talking about this game for a couple of months now. And, and this is what it looks like. It's like, yeah, that's, that's what, that's what it looks like. Yeah. I mean, I guess you can show later and get away with it. I remember, uh, Hearthstone sometime after release showed early stuff that were basically prototypes and it looked like, you know, a kid made it in a flash class in junior high. It looked really bad, yeah. but it didn't matter. That wasn't the point. The point was gameplay first, let's figure it out. And then eventually we dress this thing up to look amazing. Um, 
I think had they released that prior to that and said, hey, we're working on a card game, here's what it looks like, they would have gotten dragged, rightfully yeah. or not, because nobody understands this process. So I, I just think it's interesting that you guys are having to balance this, given your decision to go so transparent with the process, and yet you still you still may have snags like that, right? You don't want to show something too early, but in the in the name of transparency, we kind of want to show them something. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so. we probably will before too long. But you know, it's 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 not going to look like a game. It's certainly not going to look like a you know triple A MMO. Um, let so, me. Oh, go ahead, please. Uh, something Christine and I have talked about actually is you know we've talked about how we want to have like shorter dev cycles, get things out earlier, and I think the the er is doing a lot of work in those sentences. Uh, just because we want to show something on the earlier side doesn't mean we're going to show it as early as humanly possible. Um, Christina has a lot of like smart thoughts she shared with me about when it makes sense to show things and how much people need to interpret things and how much we need to interpret what comes in and translate all of that. So um, I I think the decision when we do finally show early stuff, it will look earlier than you were used to. It's probably not going to be right away still, though. And um, it's going to go through the Christina filter in terms of when is it time? <laughs> when is it time? To, to show people and have it, um, well, we'll get back something that's worth it because it takes effort for us to prepare things that are player facing. We want to make sure that in addition to, you know, showing things to fans that they think it's the right thing to do, we're also getting the feedback that we need out of it. Yeah, that actually brings up a whole nother question about uh, about the feedback part of the loop. Uh, someone in the chat just said something I think is worth bringing up. Mannix in the chat says the prototyping phase can also be one of the most fun parts where the creative freedom is as fresh as possible. Um, it does sound like the most fun. I assume I assume you guys are having a ball with this this stage, anxious for what's next, but you know, why why not have as much fun, throw as much pain at the wall as you can before before you gotta lock into all your paths, at least generally speaking. Um, is it the most fun time? Uh, uh Christina, do you do you enjoy this part of the of the process? I love ambiguity, so I love prototype phase. Uh, it is very challenging, um, but it's also creatively open, and there's a lot of learnings and kind of a, a lot of uh, shifts and pivots as you learn, so it feels really fast-paced. Um, but that being said, I think every phase of development has its own kind of special like perk for like, this is what you're going to feel during this, um, you know, like the, like, in, in pre-pro, you're still figuring out a lot, um, and the game is more known. So it's it, I feel like it might be actually you're having more productive conversations a little bit later uh, in the game because you're not your answer to everything isn't always we need to figure that out later, um, which often is an answer in prototype because some things you need to figure out around scaling aren't important in prototype. Um, and then like in production, everything gets really exciting because you're, you're getting ready to show this game. You're probably, it's in some players' hands in, in alpha and beta. So like, yeah, it, it gets very, uh, different throughout the different phases, but I do love prototype. So this, this point I'm going to bring up is probably a Greg thing. Um, Shambit's gaming in the chat asked this question. Are you going down the codev route to try and keep the core team small? You've talked or at least mentioned a couple of times, Greg, in the past about, expanding you have some job openings now in fact uh, i think you have a technical artist position that's still open uh, other things and so the team is meant to grow obviously but how much even especially maybe even at this phase are you are you driven to keep it i don't know from getting too big too quick and having too many yeah, voices in the kitchen or however that works we have i think 
we're hiring people so fast, it's sometimes hard to keep track. I think we have 20, 20 people now who've, who've either are, are working or have um, signed on. Mm. And probably by the end of next year, we'll grow to about 25 or 30 total. Um, because beyond that, it just, you, you want to have good tools, you want to have good pipelines, you want to have a good build experience. This is not a good time to bring in, like, say, a very junior game designer, because that person is going to say, well, how do I do anything? Like, I want to add a new spell to the game. And we'd say, well, you can't add spells to the game yet. You got to get a programmer to do that for you. So right. we're not at a point yet where we can grow the team dramatically. But the question also gets to, like, what is the right size for a team? And I think World of Warcraft, when I left, was like three or four hundred. I think it's six, eight, a thousand people now. Yeah. We would love to not be that. On the other hand, we want to make a great game, and if that's what it takes to make the great game, you know, we'll we'll grow. That's just that's just all there is to it. Um, if we can make a team smaller by being smart with outsourcing, with code dev, with finding partners, um, we'll you know we'll try that approach. But at the end of the day, it has to be a great game, and we want to we want to be triple a with the, uh, you know, the graphics and the audio and the polish that that suggests. So we might have to grow. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, stories early on, uh, in the, in wow's development or, or release where Morheim uh, and powers that be were promising a certain player count. I think he said, you know, we think we can be a million within the year or something. And at launch it was like six million, and then it grew to some huge number and way over what they thought. So they had to ramp up capability, capacity, servers, all that stuff. Is some of this unknowable until launch day? It is. I, I hope that by talking about the game early, we'll get a good idea of is this something players are excited about? Do we have good buzz? Are we looking at a, a smaller audience, which is which is great if we have a small dedicated audience, or are we looking at a really big audience? For MMOs today they all tend to get a lot of trials. Right. The, the issue is, will people stick around beyond a couple of weeks? Um, so we think we'll have a lot of people on launch day. We just have to make sure the content, there's enough content and then a sign of quality that they stick around. Right. And Lisa, uh, it sounds like you and Christina are going to be the, the two primarily in charge of, uh, or at least overseeing a lot of the rollout of things you can show when you can show them, right? I feel like you're, you're going to be the go-tos on this. At this stage, obviously, we're talking about as much as we can about this thing. But is there any way to to predict at this stage when people might be able to get to see something more than the the bits of concept art, art that, are up, that are up on the site now, which are all great and we love them? But you know, if you had to guess, what do you think the what do you think the timeline is? Christina, question. Oh, oh, yeah. good, Christina. I'm um, I'm going to lay so, you with this heavy question. Go ahead. We could also mention internal testing versus like external stuff might be interesting. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I think the the question is really who are we talking about, right? So um, in prototype phase, which is you know uh, like what we're in right now, uh, I expect there will be some players that do get to see a little bit more behind the curtain, um, whether that be from surveys or from small like playtest groups. Uh, we do want to have multiple playtests in prototype phase, but in prototype phase, because of the things that uh, Greg and Lisa mentioned, where it's really messy, you have to squint really hard. It means a lot of times we're kind of holding players' hands during playtests um, to help them squint around like, oh, we don't have this part in yet, but it will be like this. <laughs> Um, and because you need that handholding, you keep the groups pretty small. Um, so what that means is if you asked me, like, how many people are going to play test, right? It might be 
a hundred, maybe a little bit more, right? So some people definitely get hands-on. And one thing I want to do, though I haven't validated this with anyone, is share some of those playtest results with the wider community to say like, hey, here's what our playtests are showing. Here's what we learned from them. Um, so that's one way that maybe we'll be able to expand beyond just the people who are very lucky and get to do playtests. Um, and then Greg mentioned internal and external, like the team will be playtesting a lot. There will be different levels, I think, of, of uh, people we trust that we bring in um, to um, help us really, really early on. Uh, and my hope, sorry, last point, my hope is with surveys, uh, we can also get an even wider audience. So things like concept art, we could show to thousands of our uh, potential players and get their input on uh, so I'm very excited for that as well. How do you know, uh, Christina, when it's time to make the next step? In other words, we've prototyped enough next phase. All right, that part is done. Next phase. Now we're doing public play tests in some sort of alpha. Okay, next phase. Like I'm, I, I have a lot of curiosity about just the workflow of that. So uh, a, a, obviously it's a team effort and everybody gets to throw in on whether you guys are ready for whatever the next phase is. But I'm guessing it's not that cut and dry, right? There's probably some, I don't know, some minutia in there. And there's no real let, like, all right, starting Tuesday, we're in prototype. Like, it doesn't really work that way, does it? I'll let Christina answer this. And then I want to give you my perspective because I hate prototype and she's very good at it. So. Mm. Oh, interesting. I have some all right. thoughts too. This is yeah. a good question, Scott. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm going to hand off to Lisa after, after I say one thing, which is I think one way to make sure that you know when you are finished with a phase is to be very clear what that phase is trying to accomplish. So all the things we said earlier about like, hey, we're trying to figure out the most innovative and risky parts of the game. We have that in uh, like, uh, very s detailed. What are we trying to learn? Um, what are our goals? What are we trying to prove out with the player experience that will be at the end of uh, prototype phase? Um, and Lisa has been very critical for how we actually map that out. So I'll, I'll let Lisa explain the rest. Thank you. Um, as Christina said, um, we try to make sure we have crisp definitions of what done looks like. Um, and I think the most important thing is to have that before you go into prototyping to help keep yourself honest. Um, we try to be informed by uh, dependencies, what is going to unblock other people to get learnings and our learnings. And this early, um, done can look like either a deliverable, like the character's in-game and it can jump, something you can point to and check a box. But some, sometimes it might also look like we have confidence in XYZ. For example, like we're not going to have extremely polished, fully fleshed out combat in our game at the end of prototype. That's going to be a much bigger effort. But we do want uh, Brian Holinka, our uh, uh, gameplay design director, to be able to say, yes, I can see where this is going. I have a vision for it. We have confidence that we are headed in the right direction. Mm. And sometimes when you just have stuff roughed in, a very senior, very smart person saying, I have confidence in this is gonna be all you get, and then you move forward. And that's okay in prototype. It becomes less okay later, but that's okay in prototype. Interesting. Um, yes. <laughs> so, and it's still not that simple. We've agreed what our criteria are, but we still need to think about that critically. Um, it's not as simple as saying, did we achieve it all? Yes, then we go forward. If we didn't, then we failed. And what happens at that point? Um, Remember, this is learning-based, so we might learn that some goal was less important or more important as we go. Mm. Um, 
So something, if something is not a top priority, it might be okay for us to say, man, we got most of the way there. We got some learnings about it, but really we can finish this in the next phase without repercussions. Oh no, we finished four to five of the pieces of art for this goal that we thought the last one can happen in early pre-production and no one's gonna, nothing's gonna be on fire. Mm. But if it is one of our highest priority goals, like if we're really validating something that is critical to our game, working it all in the first place, um, that is something where we might say uh, we we didn't actually achieve prototype. And in that case, we've talked about this with everyone at the studio, our investors are on board. If something like that happened, we would probably extend prototype a few months um, because we don't want to say we achieved something um, if we didn't. And we, we need those learnings. That's why it's a goal. Um, so and it's, it's a lot easier for us to extend a little bit now when we're smaller um, in order to get that confidence that will help us be efficient more reliably when we're bigger. And if we're all doing our jobs right, this won't be a surprise. We won't come up on end of prototype day and say, we need more time, guys. We would be flagging it partway through and having that discussion. And it would be something that um, we we adjust partway through and all feel good about the how and why we are taking more time if that's what's needed. That makes sense. So, so Greg, I can't let it slip exactly. You mentioned you don't like prototype phase. Why? What is it about prototype uh, that rubs you wrong? And and why are you why are you so excited to get to whatever's after? So imagine it's like this. I use food analogies all the time. So let's say that we decide instead of ghost, we're going to make a batch of really good chocolate chip cookies. All right. So you whip up the cookies and you burn the first batch. Like okay, everyone agrees that's terrible. Throw it away. Then you make the second batch and they're okay. And then you're like, well, how do we improve this? And someone says, oh, it needs more salt. And someone else says, oh, no, you need to, like, let the butter come up to room temperature first. And then you make another batch of cookies, and it's pretty good. And then everyone keeps suggesting, let's try this, let's try this. And then someone invariably says, you know what? I think recipe three was the good one. Let's go back to that. And then someone says, maybe we should be making pie instead of cookies. Let's throw <laughs> this whole chocolate chip cookie thing away and make pie. Um, it's really easy to, to spin your wheels forever. And... A lot of startups manage to finish prototype because when you're a true startup, you'll run out of money if you don't. So you mm -hmm. have to like finish. A lot of established studios working with a publisher, there's often some kind of due date or, hey, our contract said you were going to hit these milestones. We're not going to pay you until you hit those milestones. We're in an unusual situation where we have, theoretically, we have as long as we want to make the game which could lead to a world where we're in prototype for years and years and years. None of us want that. And, right. and that thought terrifies me. And it, don't worry, it's not going to happen. And the reason I'm so grateful to have Christine and Lisa is they can be very clear about, okay, team, we agreed. These are the goals of prototype. We've now met those goals. So we're going to move on. We're not going to keep messing around with the freaking butter or the eggs. We're going to move on. Yeah. That's interesting analogy. I think it works. Um, and it's, <laughs> it sounds like you've got the relationship with uh, investment slash management slash NetEase partners and so on to have a little runway to do what you need to do. But you've all been through this process where you had limited time and where you had a date that was locked in by a publisher or a publicly traded company or whatever. Um, so I'm guessing this will be an interesting mix of we have a little more freedom, but we all know we got to get done. And that's exactly. going to, that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, exactly. been a and number that's why I hate prototype. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, that explains it. Everybody. I've had a few people in the chat, bring up the question about whether they'll be able to test any of this prototype phase. Um, 
I, I feel like you kind of indicated it before, uh, both Jennifer and Lisa, in, in in some words. But it seems like at some point you guys are going to see a whole lot more. But do you really need to be there to go back to one of Greg's food analogies? Do you need to be there for pouring the the flour into the bowl? Not necessarily. Come back later when you smell something good wafting out of the kitchen, and right, know, right, everything will be fine. Sorry, I don't want to steal your shtick. <laughs> no, it's good. <laughs> I like it a lot. Uh, all right, we've got, um, let's see, uh, one question here from Maddox in the chat. It says, do you fear that too much player feedback would cause a messy game trying to make everyone happy? Uh, any of you can answer that. You know what, I actually throw it to Christina. Uh, yeah, this is right up your perspective. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where, how do you, where do you stand on that question? So I think a really critical part of that is understanding who our audience is. Uh, so um, we, you can't make everyone happy. Um, so our like core audience is MMO players. One of the interesting things is MMO players are pretty varied in what they, why they're playing MMOs, how they play MMOs. So that means it's it's challenging to get all of this feedback and then understand like okay these kinds of players aren't feeling the game. Like they're they're not happy. What does that mean? And then we have to go back to the game vision. So who is the game vision? Like what kinds of players is the game going to support the most? So when I look at our vision, I'm like, hey, players that love progression, players that love exploration, players that love playing with other players, especially their friends, like those, those kinds of players, I really care um, deeply about what they think. But I, I want to bring another angle into this. I also care about kind of all different kinds of players. And some players are more likely to talk to us than others. But that doesn't mean that those players are necessarily like more, like there's more of them or that they they have better ideas, right? Uh, I think one of the tricks of research is to make sure that you get a sample that can represent your entire player base um, and so that's one of uh, my jobs is to make sure that we are getting inputs from all different kinds of players and kind of weaving those together to understand um, what will make the best experience for a player base that is so varied. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know how you guys manage this part. It sounds hard to me because you mentioned earlier there's aspects to the blue shards that work a little bit like uh, you might experience a survival game. And somebody's going to hear that in this episode and go, oh, they're making a survival MMO. Right. And that's not, we're not making a survival game. Yeah, we're not. Yeah. Ma- that's not what they're making. But even if they, uh, if they were, and we're even saying as much, um, it it almost doesn't. This is my broader question. It almost doesn't matter because gamers, uh, in quotes, as a as a group, um, tend to be very. And I don't mean this in a. This is not a pejorative. They're they're an, they're a opinionated subsection of consumers. We really like what we like. We like to play what we like. Um, I, I notice these days I'm more of a solo player than I am a team player when it comes to MMOs, uh, that changed quite a bit over time. It has, has a lot to do with schedule and family and a million other reasons. Um, but you know, these days, if you find me in, uh, world of Warcraft or over in, uh, uh, Guild Wars two or something, I'm often on my own playing that game. I assume that 2023 Scott's opinion will matter some, and so would have Scott 2012's opinion mattered somewhere. I was raiding hardcore every night um, and everything in between. I guess the big broader question is you're never going to be able to satisfy everybody. Do you, do you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with this idea that sometimes people are going to come away going, well, if there's anything to do with uh, 
survival in this. Forget it. I hate that genre. Like, I, I guess having the transparency is one thing, but having to deal with that huge body of feedback is a whole nother thing. And Greg, I'll throw it to you. Do you feel, do you feel good about your, I know you do because you're good at this. Why am I asking you? But I'll ask you anyway. This is what you do. You, <laughs> you have a shield on and you get on social media and you, and you fight. Not, you know, you know what I mean. But is that a concern that, that this much um, visibility, I'll finally get to my point here, this much visibility means all the more consternation, all the more grumpy, all the more whatever, and you're, you're going to have to balance all that or deal with that. I mean, we want a little bit of the grumpy, to be honest. We want we want to get the feedback. If if we say, hey, we, we really don't think PvP has any place in this game, and a lot of players, it doesn't even have to be a lot. People make a really good argument for we think this might be a really good opportunity to have PVP. That's, you know, that's valuable feedback. Mm-hmm. If we get a lot of people saying, I love this game, but I really, really want to play it on my Nintendo Switch, you know, maybe that's something we would consider more. It, the, I'm not scared of the feedback. Um, to Christina's point, you can't act on every single piece of feedback you get. You kind of have to to pick and choose what makes sense, what is what matches your vision, um, what, what your audience, the audience you're going for is. Um, to that point, though, you mentioned social media. We are going to launch our Discord early 2024, hopefully mid-late February, maybe a little later than that. And that'll give us another avenue for players who, who just want to opine about MMO design to to you know be in there with us. Now, you've mentioned in the past, Greg, and and, and I, I'd love to hear everybody sort of speak to this, but we got a, a, a text, uh, which, by the way, came to 801 You can send those anytime. We're happy to read them here on the show. Andrew L., uh, wrote in and said, for word on the street, Greg has mentioned a shorter dev cycle. How will this manifest, i.e. early access type, release schedule, or frequent small content updates? Uh, so really to your comment about shorter dev cycles and what that actually means, we'll start with you, Greg, and then let's pass it around and, and see what else, what other thoughts we have. What do you think of that? Yeah, there, there's two ways that manifest. One is we think we can just make this game faster than we could if we were at a traditional publisher. Um largely because we don't have all these frequent kind of stakeholder check-ins where people have to, we have to make it through a gate in order to kind of be allowed to take the game to the next chapter. And I think that's already paying off because we're able to, to, to build really fast. Mm. I think the other part, the question is getting at is how frequently do we release new content? And our suspicion is that you have to come out with new content about once a month and maybe even major new content about once a year. I think that's about what Destiny does or 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 a game like Genshin Impact now um, or Honkai. The, that, that content cadence feels pretty good. Mm. When I was on WoW, we had trouble getting a new expansion out in shorter than like two years, and that felt too long. And I think players start to feel like, hey, I'm ready for something new. That's a great, great point about the WoW side of things. It did feel like they were always saying, you always heard interviews, or I would even hear them personally at BlizzCon. People would say to me, we're trying to tighten up the schedule and we'd love to be doing a big major expansion once per year or whatever. And that just never seemed to happen. And a lot of us just went, well, that's because they care about quality and they want it to be good and polished. That's all, it's all true, I guess. Um, But they just sort of felt like they gave it up. It does feel like they're maybe trying something different with a Mets and stage announcement of a three tiered expansion set, basically that will come out pretty rapidly one after the other. But as a new studio starting, it must be kind of nice to know you're starting with that in mind. Because I don't know if when they started WoW, they were thinking that hard about how expansions would work. I could be wrong. Um, Yeah, I mean, spoiler, when when I was on World of Warcraft, we often had no idea what the next expansion was going to be. We'd have a rough idea of the story, maybe. 
Um, I, it's encouraging that they now are planning planning that even on the on the Blizzard side of things. We're going to develop a five year plan. Hopefully, the game makes it five plus ten years, so at least we know where the story is going. And we can always make changes based based on player feedback, but we want to have that in mind so we kind of know if we're going to introduce this. You know, if the storm druids are going to show up in year two, we can start hinting at that early, and we can start building that into the pipeline. Uh, Christina, any any part of that? Uh, uh do you want to address it all from your perspective? I think for for me, uh, like how does kind of shorter dev cycles manifest on the team is really about our philosophy. And it, that will hopefully lead to faster uh, dev cycles. Uh, and so like one of the things for me is to make sure like everybody's moving in the same direction. We're all building the same game here. Like we are very clear on our goals. We can prioritize them so that if we run out of time, the question becomes like, is that goal important enough that we extend the time? Or is that like, can we push that goal to the next cycle? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think like it's, it's more about a philosophy of how we run. A- another part is really making sure that uh, you can identify when the team is starting to spin. Um, so Greg mentioned before, like spinning is very common in prototype because uh, you get kind of hung up on chicken and egg. Like, do you want to solve it this way? Well, I don't know. How are you going to solve this other question over here? Um, and then you can just fit into this vicious cycle of of waiting for other people to answer questions um, that they're waiting for you. Uh, so I think watching for that spin and knowing like, let's just make a call. Um, and like we we will understand over time as the game fleshes out more whether that was the right call or the wrong call. But making a call is sometimes the better move than trying to wait till you're sure of the right call. Mm-hmm. And Lisa, I don't know if uh, you had anything else to add there. Uh, I loved everything you said about uh, it being more of a philosophy than something with concrete examples. My hot take on this is that I care less about having shorter death cycles and more about having efficient death cycles. But I think that one kind of leads to the other. This is a big game. We have ambitious stuff. If we are obsessed with it being short, we might shortchange things. But we should worry about it being efficient and moving forward quickly. And like Christina said, not spinning. That's how I'm thinking about it. Uh, and then to plus one, what Greg said earlier, um, we uh, it can. We've all been on teams before where people went very deep on certain things very early on, earlier than you might have an instinct to. And this can be really great for building confidence if your team is big or if you have a lot of stakeholders and a big approval hierarchy. Um, but we're really lucky that we don't. And so we don't need to spend as much time on that. Not zero time, but like as much time. So we really want to stay lean, focus on our goals and move fast and be strategic about going broad before we go deep in most areas. That makes sense to me. Uh, Greg, I got a question from Kakey, Kakeski. I'm not sure how you say this guy's name. Uh, it was a Twitter question uh, slash X for Greg specifically. When working on Ghost, did the concept of game design come first or did the world of Ghost uh, mull around in your noggin first? It's like the chicken or the egg question. Um, I've had this question too, and I'll, I'll, I'll direct it a little bit and say, did you come to all these people and say, Greg's got an idea. <laughs> and then and then you you put down that little uh, you know, that egg, for example, and that and everyone else has been taking care of that egg and nurturing it and getting it to hatch. Or did you come and say, We need an egg? Like how how where did where did you come from on this, on that whole direction? So I came with an idea and the gameplay in this case came first. You can you can have the IP come first. And the reason I wanted to come up with a game pitch was for a couple of reasons. Um I've been on games that I led 
where I really wanted I wanted everyone to be really bought into the idea. So I wanted the I, the the game vision to like bubble up from the team. And you can do that. It's just, to Lisa's point about efficiency, it's slow. It takes a lot of discussions. In this case, I thought it would be more efficient to say, hey, here's a game I want to make. Is this something that you would be interested in making? And when you get people say yes, and to be fair, most of them have said yes, um, they know what we're making. They're already in. They're already bought in. And if they, if they just don't like the idea, one of the best art director interviews I had, the, the person who was an awesome artist said, I really want to make something that's super gritty, low magic. And I'm like, awesome. That's not our game. And he said, awesome. Glad we had this conversation. And so he knew right away it wasn't right for him. Yeah, I had early on the idea of we're going to have we're going to have blue zones and they're going to be kind of private and really emphasize exploration. And then we're going to have red zones and they are um, going to be more about the, the classic MMO experience. And we're going to have a lot of classes. And I can't remember. There were a couple other, you know, ideas really early on. And I said to, to Shanti, who's our head of um, IP, and, and the viewers will meet him soon. Um, I said, I feel like this game is going to be a lot about jumping through portals to go between red and blue zones. But games that are about jumping through portals can feel very disconnected. So how can, can you think of an IP to solve that problem. And he said, well, what if you're in the city and you see all of the blue and red shards up in the sky? And so they feel like real places. And so that's, that's how the IP kind of built along the, um, the initial game design. Interesting. I feel like we haven't heard that yet. Did you guys talk about that in the AMA as far as the, uh, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't that, know. That's an amazing little detail. Yeah. Yeah. Nicely done. We shared a little something secrety with people. I like it. Uh, <laughs> that's how we, the sausage gets made. That's right. Uh, we got a quick question in the chat from uh, Shambit's Gaming again for Lisa. And this speaks a little bit to some of your experience. It says, the patch cadence on Valorant was very rapid. Are there any key lessons that you're bringing over from that that you're willing to share here? Nothing specific comes to mind. But I also don't want to get in my head yet about what that's going to look like when we're still defining what our game is going to be. Um, Valorant is one place I've worked. I also worked on God of War, which is a single player game. I've worked on all different kinds of genres. And I think my biggest takeaway from Valorant and the others is you need to start at ground zero thinking about the needs of your game. The way that you would make a single player story driven game and a highly competitive first person shooter that needs to be lightning fast it's just going to be completely different. You're starting with completely different set of priorities and you're tackling things in a very different way. So the, I want to take that approach mm-hmm. and we are so far away from figuring out what that cadence should look like that um, I don't really have an authentic answer yet, yeah. <laughs> but that's how I'll be thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's, it's very good reminder that that, you know, we're talking about a lightning fast uh, shooter that requires a very, very different approach, skill set, fan base, everything else to an MMO. And, you know, think about what MMOs are. They couldn't be more different than each other. Uh, the, even- the riot philosophy for both League of Legends and Valorant was we're going to patch basically every two weeks. We're going to make very frequent balance changes because we think that's what the audience wants. But that's not the only approach. Like um, the the Nintendo, you know, Smash fighting community believes just the opposite. Like they don't want balance patches because they believe everything should be up to the players to solve. And if there's a character that's too dominant, that's on the players to try to find the counter, not on Nintendo to I- issue frequent patches. So mm-hmm. I think 
yeah, to Lisa's point, we will have to develop that philosophy, and there's not a right or wrong approach. Well, for the record, Kirby is overpowered. I'll just say that out loud. <laughs> um, never, never doesn't beat me. Um, well, that is uh, uh, roughly it. We're gonna we're gonna look forward to another uh, month month show next month. We're gonna do it in the, in the brand new year. Of course, we're all heading toward Christmas. I hope everyone's having a fantastic holiday. Um, I want to thank again once uh, or once again, Lisa and Christina. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. You guys guys are awesome. I cannot wait to hear from everybody on the team and in their various capacities, uh, bringing light to a process that we just don't get to hear about about much as players. So even if nobody else cares about this process, and I know many do, but even if they didn't, this would be great for me because I'm super enjoying this. Um, Audience of one. That's right. Uh, Greg, as always, uh, it's a great pleasure having you here, and I'm excited to talk to you again in another 30 days or so. Oh, and everybody, yeah, we got to, you know, we got to do, got to get Holinka on here. Got to get him quick because I got questions for Brian and I've known (laughs) Brian for a long time. Super nice guy, super cool dude. Great dad, uh, fantastic mind for PVP kind of content and all this other stuff. Uh, But when you know a guy that well, it's going to be fun to throw questions at him that I wouldn't ask anybody else. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, We'll bring the whole team. We'll bring anyone who wants to come, you know, to talk about their craft and how they do their magic. Yeah, I'd love it. Um, I, I feel like today, though, I'm talking to the people that are actually going to get everything done. And so I'm honored uh, to have this group here because I think they're the reasons we're going to get a game, everybody. We're all going to get a game eventually because of their leadership. So watch for that. Uh, in the meantime, fantasticpixelcastle.com is the place you're going to want to go. That's the website. You'll find updates there, all sorts of stuff. People are asking about forums and all other kind of questions. Don't worry. Those things are all going to come down the pipe at some point, I'm sure. Uh, discord next that'll probably be our next yeah you start with discord and you move up move out from there that's kind of the new the new way of doing it uh so watch for that fantasticpixelcastle.com and if you're looking for more information about this show how to find archives and so on there's only two episodes but you know what i mean frogpants.com slash street and please keep your feedback coming uh, the voicemail and text line. You can leave us voicemails if you'd like. No one's been uh, 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 brave enough to do it. But when you do, we'll play your voicemails here. It is 801-471-0462 is that number. Uh, we'll be back in January with a brand new episode. Until then, everybody have a great Christmas and a happy New Year's holiday. And we'll see you then. Get more at frogpants.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.